0: Okay, so it says it's rec- we're recording. Alright, so let me also get my timer set up real quick, because we have 10 minutes for introductory, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Alright, so today we'll be debating the Okay, it's started. Tonight we'll be debating the topic of whether or not morality can exist uh, as well as meaning with or without a God. Uh, I will be arguing in favor that morality and meaning cannot exist without a God. So, first off, the way to properly understand morality and meaning, uh, to properly understand that, we would have to also understand what we are in relation to that. So, depending on your worldview, it will definitely affect how you see morality and meaning. So as a theist, right, I believe that we derive morality and meaning from God and that it's more or less programmed into us. Uh, However, I believe in uh, dual morality. I believe that we both have objective and subjective moralities, not just either or. Um, And I will go into more depth into this in just a second. So when approaching the topic of morality and meaning, Uh, It would also help to define the terms. What do we mean when we talk about morality? And what do we talk about when we mean meaning? So morality, or the definition that I'm going with, is more or less uh, conformity to ideals of right human conduct or a natural law of sorts for moral ethics, uh, a standard by which we define something as right or wrong. Um, And in regards to meaning, it's more or less something in which... uh, we strive for, we pursue in hopes of achieving. It's an immaterial uh, sense of accomplishment. And so that being said, can we have morality and meaning without a God, right? So here's where the difference between objective and subjective morality comes in, because I know that a lot of people, especially in our postmodern world, tend to believe that morality is subjective, meaning that what is morally right or wrong Depends on the actual individual, and that there is no higher uh, standard beyond oneself. Uh, however, I believe that morality is both objective and subjective in this sense. So, objective morality is more or less—it's um, a sense of morality that is transcendent of one's own personal beliefs or convictions. Uh, an objective morality is is objectively true, uh, regardless of what you believe. So, another example of this would be, you know, cannibalism. Uh, we could say objectively that cannibalism is a bad idea. It is not good. It is morally wrong. Um, In the sense that not only, regardless of whatever you believe the origin of morality to be, I'm pretty sure both of us would agree that it is wrong. And I believe it's objectively wrong in the sense that regardless of your opinion on it, it is still wrong. So just because someone believes it's okay does not make it okay. Um, So in the sense, there are certain things that are Objective and certain things that are subjective in regards to morality and even in meaning Uh, there are things that uh, We can give us meaning outside of ourselves And then there are things within ourselves that also give us that same meaning the sense of internal accomplishment satisfaction and so That being said can we have it without a God? Uh, I argue no simply because both of these concepts are completely abstract right And if, supposing that we do not have a God, that God does not exist, there would only be two uh, ways in which we could go with this. Uh, There's the form of atheism that acknowledges a soul uh, or a personal individual spirit. Then there's the form of atheism that does not acknowledge such a thing. So what do I mean when I say soul or spirit? Uh, What I personally mean when I say soul or spirit is a sense of deeper consciousness, Right, it's in the sense of consciousness. Uh, many would define it as the awareness of one's own personal self. Like you're aware of who you are and that you exist. And I would say that a soul is a step further. It's a deeper, deeper sense of consciousness in many ways. And if you're religious, it would be the mechanism by which you can interact with the immaterial and grasp the immaterial. But from the atheistic perspective. I would say that the soul would be more or less the mechanism by which we can better understand uh, immaterial concepts, since we cannot, since majority majority of atheists don't tend to acknowledge uh, spirits and uh, spiritual realm and that sort of thing. And so that being said, if there are the atheists who believe in spirits and souls from a relig- in the religious sense of the term, right? And so that being said. We'll cover that in just a second. The atheism that does not believe in such a thing would naturally be a more deterministic form of atheism simply because if you do not believe in a soul or a spirit uh, in a religious sense, you would then have to explain uh, how we as material beings uh, can grasp immaterial concepts. How is it that a cluster of protons and neutrons Uh, Grasp a concept such as right and wrong, or such as, you know, this gives me meaning or this doesn't give me meaning. And what would the point be in reproducing that life? You know, the meaning that comes from reproduction. You know, we don't just stay here on Earth naturally and just fade away. We find ways to reproduce, and many people refer to it as an immortality project. Something that outlives yourself, something that people remember you by even when you're gone. So that being said, what is it about a cluster of cells that requires such means of survival? Not only that, but taking it a step further, who is to say that one's you know set of morality is above another person's set of morality? Because without a soul or without a deeper state of consciousness to properly identify and determine such concepts, the reality is that such things are only thoughts, which technically would be nothing more than a few neurons firing off inside your skull in the form of a brain. And that being said, who would be to say that if someone were to hypothetically kill a whole bunch of people, who's to hypothetically say that their brain was misfiring or that it wasn't misfiring? And how come is it that if it was a misfire, how come it wouldn't be a legitimate excuse If they were to go to court and say, oh, well, I'm sorry, judge, you know, my, the chemicals in my brain misfired and it caused me to kill all those people. It wasn't necessarily my fault. You know, there was just some chemical imbalance that caused these thoughts and it caused me to slaughter all these people. Majority of, if someone was to use such an argument as their defense in a legal case of such an atrocity, majority of people would not accept such a defense. Most people would say, oh, he's guilty and punish him anyways, regardless of the fact that technically it was nothing more than a chemical reaction inside his brain. And not only that, but what is it about humans in particular or animals in general that we have a necessity to even provide justice, right? Because again, if we're nothing more than a cluster of cells, what is it about us? This immaterial aspect that requires justice to be served if someone you know does an atrocity you know what is it about it that requires such a thing so the not the non-spiritual atheism as i'll call it from here on out the one that denies the inner soul or spirit from the religious sense uh would have to explain this now the atheism that does affirm such uh, a soul such a spirit uh, which most people would just define as plain old superstitious um they would more or less, they wouldn't have necessarily as hard a time answering such a question, because personally, I believe that a lot of these concepts are grasped, are allowed to be grasped by our soul, by our spirit, and that's the aspect of us that enables us to be able to grasp such immaterial concepts. However, this also leads to the question for the superstitious atheist. Um, If we have a soul or a spirit, right, by which we have a deeper level of consciousness and being able to determine such things, Number one, where did such spirit or consciousness come from? Was it always in existence, or was there initiating factor? And number two, if there is such an immaterial thing, such as a soul or a spirit from the religious sense, would it not be possible that there is also a God in such a manner, considering that both are immaterial? Um, and so as a Christian and as a theist, I believe that God has properly, um, uh, written his moral laws on our heart there is there is a more transcendent law that all of us have to follow uh, for our own uh, in a sense to avoid the feeling of guilt that comes as a as a consequence of breaking that moral law and i know my time is almost up so i'm going to pass it on over to you okay so
1: um Yeah, so I would also like to, you know, go over some definitions and some terms that subjective morality is dependent on one's own interpretation, and that an objective moral standpoint is contingent on something beyond the individual. And, of course, I would agree with this. And we should also pay attention to what we mean as good. And I would also like to point out, before I begin discussing my worldview, is the subjectivity of the Christian God. It's pragmatically very consistent with the problems you pointed out with the subjective moral standpoint, in that God, biblically, has had people do things that we would conceive to be atrocious, murder, and even... He's implicated he would allow someone to murder their own child. The divine being. You. Acknowledge that this divine being has had people kill others in the past and has even insinuated that he is okay with killing children. It is also important to point out that God himself either possesses a subjectivity towards ethics and morality, or he himself is under and appeals to a higher standard. Because if there's a standard above God, then you can say that there's objective morality. But if there isn't, that we are simply experiencing a subjective morality given to us by God. It's also important to point out the very good thing that you picked up on, that a theist cannot be purely objective in virtue of God. If I were a theist, and I believed in the objective morality given to me by God, I still assert things are good and bad, that are devoid of the teachings of God. If I were to say that a watch is good, There's nothing in the Bible telling me what a good watch is and to what standard. I'm asserting that the watch is good because I'm appealing to something beyond theology. What I'm appealing to is the function of the watch. A watch is good because it commits and it performs a function. If it didn't perform the function, is it really a good watch or is it a bad watch? Or is it even a watch at all? I would argue that it isn't a watch. If it doesn't do its duty and its function, it can't be considered a watch. It would just be a conglomerate of parts, pieces. What makes something itself is essence. Essence and existence are obviously contingent on each other. There's no existence without essence. It's also important to point out that I think good is a metaphysical question. What is good? And it's a tricky one to answer, but for the sake of this debate, I would like to say it's the rational universalization of human welfare. Because here I appeal to the Kantian sense of the categorical imperative that something cannot be good intrinsically if it cannot be universalized. You can't say that eating is intrinsically good or good at all if There is a point where eating becomes unhealthy or detrimental to your spirit. So it cannot be universalized. You can't say that murder or killing is inherently or intrinsically good, because, again, it cannot be universalized if we were all to kill each other. It, It would be bad in the sense that we would no longer have the spirit and sentience to even perceive such a thing to begin with. So here is where... I describe where objective morality comes from. And actually, I would like to make a distinction made by Hegel in that morality and ethics are not one and the same, and that we must make a b- distinction between ethics and morality, ethics being objective and morality being subjective. But ethics here is what we consider to be morality. And I would argue that we, what we are referring to as the function of man, Again, a theist or an atheist can assert that a computer is either good or bad and what they're appealing to is a function. They can assert that a watch is good or bad and they're uh, appealing to a function. They can assert that a human eye is good or bad when appealing to a function. Does it do its duty? And we can do the same with man. A man cannot be good because he's not doing his function in his duty. I ground this all in biology and I ground this all in human spirit. This is grounded in something that I feel is more objective than even God. For God is, and his teachings are inherently subjective because God doesn't teach you what is right and wrong. He simply teaches you what he believes right and wrong to be. If you read God in the word of God, does he give an argument, really, for why killing is bad? It can't be intrinsically bad because God is incapable of doing wrong. And if God condones and has condoned the killing of certain people, this would obviously be self-refuting. God would then have done wrong. So I believe my stance is grounded in more objectivity than the negation. Ground this in spirit and I ground this in humanity and what our biological functions are. We should strive for welfare, universalized welfare. And again, I'm an idealist. I feel like my opponent is talking in materialistic terms, but I am no materialist. I believe that the world as we see it is the product of our perception and that we perceive and therefore Our reality is contingent on our perception. A good way to illustrate this in a couple of ways is the fact that you can't question your own mind and thoughts, but you can question the reality around you. If I were to ask you, look at an apple. Tell me the objectivity of the apple, its density, its height, substance. Now give it to me without subjectivity. can't. What you perceive to be red is subjective. There's nothing objective about it. What you perceive to be its feeling, its taste, also subjective. And you can't perceive the objective without the subjective. Physicalism, materialism is not what I am. Furthermore, um... I think that it's important to understand that we are making ought statements on what ought we do. And I think that it's much better to ground it in humanity, in the universalization of welfare for all. And we can go on to a a discussion.
0: Okay, so then I got a couple questions. So, first off, you, know, you talk about how morality is rooted in uh, what's best for all, correct? Like, I understood that properly.
1: Our function and our duty,
0: okay, as so humans. F- okay, so then suppose you know someone is handicapped, right? It's physically incapable of functioning properly as a human, right? Maybe they're missing their legs, their arms, and they only have half a brain or something like that, something misfortunate. Would you say that they are a good person, uh, even though they do not fully meet the functioning standard of what it means to be physically human?
1: When we say a good person and a bad person, we're referring to their function, right? And in their action. As, as opposed to an intrinsic good or bad person. Even if theists would deny that someone can be intrinsically good or bad. Um, it Well, I mean, you would disagree with that. You'd say we're yeah. intrinsically bad.
0: Yeah, yeah I would. Yeah. But,
1: <laughs> but, but we, we are intrinsically bad because of the actions that we do. So a handicapped person is not bad. Um, and they, they would be good if they did their duty. And if you know what kind of handicapped person are they sit in bed all day and they're they're bedridden,
0: right? But like that kind of goes against the whole functional aspect of it because like on the because it, it seems like you're comparing morality to simple functionality, but in many ways it seems like it kind of falls short in certain aspects because then you have to define okay what necessarily defines functionality like what's functional what's dysfunctional and what's the objective standard by which we measure measure such a concept you know
1: no i would disagree
0: okay Uh, may i ask like on what grounds and what evidence you have to disagree
1: because the existence is contingent on being able to Function, right? It's like I said, a watch isn't a watch. and doesn't exist as a watch if it doesn't perform its function. Therefore, a human must perform its function for it to exist. It must be capable of performing its function to exist.
0: So then by definition, that would make the hypothetical handicapped person non-human because they don't function. Like what does what defines functionality, you know? Because like, well, yes, we could, if we wanted to, we could use that definition, but in order to use it, we would also have to understand, okay, what is functional? What is dysfunctional? What does it mean to be functionally a human and functionally not a human? Because in many ways, you know, some tribal cannibal from, you know, a thousand, three thousand years ago, you know, they would have been functional in this physical aspect of being human but in the social and interactional standpoint it's a very dis- seems to be very dysfunctional you know because eating other humans is not as you would say for the common good of humanity
1: well it can't be universalized if you eat all humans all humans will cease to exist right
0: right but again like what would necessarily be the definition of functional because on the one hand he is functional on the other hand he isn't functional Then in the example with the handicapped person, like, on the one hand, he's not functional because he's missing a lot of functional human parts.
1: Because our our function is the strive for universal welfare, is it not?
0: Right, so let's suppose we use that definition then. Like, if function is the striving for universal welfare, why is it that, you know... Would it be functional, say, for that handicapped person to kill themselves if they were using up so many resources and not contributing as much resources as they were taking from society
1: yeah you could you could not argue that that's a bad thing, and again i I've said this before I am in favor of you know assisted suicide, especially for people that suffer with you know incredibly harsh conditions like that yeah i w- I would say that that's not an Moral negative, yes.
0: Okay, all right. So then, I guess that, that leads me to my next question. Then, so like, you know, from an atheist, well, from you know the two forms of atheism that I laid out in my introduction, right? And that, granted, that's probably more of a spectrum than it is black and white. Like, there's probably different degrees to superstitious atheism to like the form of atheism that's like cold believes that. Like Christopher Hitchens style atheism, where it's like we're brains in a vat, so to speak. But so, and I guess in your own personal beliefs as an atheist, like, how would you explain the ability of humans to be able to uh, conceptualize abstracts, things like morality and meaning?
1: Um, how are we able to abstract?
0: Yeah, cuz I mean like you know, if you think about it, like you know, one form of atheism says that we're basically just you know, machines made out of cellular cogs. But then the other yeah, form of I, atheism I disagree says with that I mean, i right. right. So like as an idealist, like you know, how would you explain our ability to be able to conceptualize and argue over abstract things, things like morality and meaning? Because let's because, face it, I don't see any other any other animals doing this
1: <laughs> because reality is contingent on an abstraction our reality there is no reality without our perception
0: okay you mind expounding on that a little bit yeah so um
1: if, if i were to tell you to look into the sky and you see stars and you see the moon and you see the sky you don't actually right your reality is that you see stars, a moon, and whatnot, but you don't. You have perception, and then with this perception you form the reality inside your head. You can't point to me, to a moon, and say that this is a moon. It's simply a collection of you know, atomic particles or whatnot within a vacuum, and even then, You know, these are everything is abstraction and comes from the mind. I wouldn't go as far as to say, you know, with Berkeley that to be is to be perceived. And I would just say that our reality is contingent on our perception. And that's why I am an idealist because a materialist would have to believe that consciousness is the driving force for or rather materialism in materials in physical matter is the driving force for consciousness and that consciousness is derived from material and i don't think that seems to be the case especially philosophically and empirically right scientists have been trying and they can't describe consciousness from physical matter and even if you look into quantum mechanics quantum science we see that things change when perceived even in science so i would say that reality is contingent on perception
0: okay so like i would agree with some of your premises like especially in regards to the immaterial driving the material because even as a theist like i i do that's sums up a lot of theism um However, I would disagree in the assertion that uh, perception is more or less uh, a determining factor of our reality. Um, or at least that it plays such a large role. Because, for example, you know, while we can point to the sun, the moon, and the stars, and while, yes, our perception tells us that that's the sun, the moon, and the stars, there's also a deeper level of perception than just sight. Like, For example, I can objectively say, that this is the sun, because based on the definition of the sun, it's a big ball and gas of fire. Fire produces a lot of heat. And then during the day when the sun is shining on us, it's a lot warmer. There's much more light produced as a result. So I can objectively say that, yes, that is a sun, if that is the definition of the sun, a big ball of fire in the sky. The sky being, you
1: Uh, know... Like I said, we we said that objective was... um, we said that objective was against the subjectivity of one, right? Right. Your own your own subjectivity. But you have to understand that everything you just described is contingent on your subjectivity. Like I said, you can't experience warmth objectively. It's subjective. You can't experience the objectivity of the object and of reality without the subjectivity. Like I said, an Apple, you can't experience its objectivity without the subjectivity. Try to imagine an Apple that is devoid of color. You can think of an apple that maybe is see-through or or white or black, but a see-through apple is just the same as no apple at all. And a black or white apple isn't an apple devoid of subjective color or any subjective traits, it's just a black or white apple. So you can't experience the objectivity without subjectivity. To a point, yes
0: and no. Because here's the thing, like, even in regards to that example with the apple, you know, while yes, it's almost impossible, well, yeah, I would say almost impossible to imagine an apple with no color, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still objectively an apple, regardless of what color you perceive it to be, or regardless of what shape you perceive it to be.
1: Objectively an apple, though, what is an objective apple?
0: It's a fruit. Uh, of a specific type of tree, and it's a casing around the particular seeds by which the tree uses to reproduce itself.
1: And, objectively, what are seeds? And, And, what is a tree? And objectively, what is a fruit?
0: They're all forms of life, different stages. A fruit is more or less the casing around the seed. Seed is the offspring, the means by which a tree produces more of itself. A tree is a living organism.
1: Mm-hmm. And objectively, what is a living organism?
0: That's where theists and atheists would dis- would also find conflict. Because a living organism, scientifically, it would be defined as uh, an object that meets the four criteria to be uh, alive. Uh, and one of those criteria is reproduction. I don't remember the other three at the moment. Um but there is a list of certain criterion by which we can objectively say, yes, this is a living organism, and no, this is not a living organism.
1: The point is that no matter how hard we try to say, you know, something is objective, completely separate from human perception and subjectivity. It's impossible. Even our perception in you- you kind of drew upon this even our perception of what life is is under conflict because of subjectivity and this is why i would say that i'm an idealist and i think that our reality is contingent on our subjectivity and our perception and i think you would have to say the same right i don't think you could say yeah
0: I would say the same, simply because, like as I said in my introductory statements, I don't necessarily uh, agree with this seeming false dichotomy of objective and subjective morality. I think it really is a combination of both, Cause, like,
1: which yeah, which we would agree on, because, yeah. because, but I, I said it, you know, a little bit differently. I said that ethics would be objective and that morality would be the subjective, and this is how I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle
0: of the debate
1: in objective ethics, right? the strive for universalized human welfare, and the subjectivity of that, the morality, is contingent on social structure, organization, a plethora of different things. So an example would be, although the ethics are consistent between culture in, um, let's say, A and B, the application of said ethics would be subjective, and that would be morality in A and B. So for an A, let's say, to show respect and, uh, to one person, you shake their hand, and in B, you bow, right? Of a form of, you know, gesture. The ethics are the same in both, to respect, which produces welfare, and can be universalized to do good. And the subjectivity comes from how you express it, you know, the bow or the handshake. That's the distinction. And the universalization is very important because you can't say that something is intrinsically good or good at all if it can't be universalized. And this is what Kant is in in one of his maxims for the uh, categorical imperative.
0: Yeah, and honestly, um, the way that I see subjective and objective morality is slightly differs. So it's more or less objective in the sense of, The consequences of violating such laws uh, assert themselves over one's subjective opinion of whether or not they should follow those laws. So, like, for example, um, one could say that it's objectively wrong to eat other people. However, one could subjectively say, hey, you know what? I don't agree with that, so I'm going to do something else. Then what makes the objective sense of morality objective and the subject of subjective is pretty much you know whichever one wins out in the end And in the majority of cases if you eat all of humanity you know the object the consequences of violating the objective moral code of do not eat other humans um, asserts itself in that you no longer have any humans to reproduce with and as a consequence the whole human race is annihilated um, And I would say that that, for me, is usually where I draw the line between objective and subjective morality. You know, our perceptions are indeed subjective, you know, in what we regard to be moral and immoral. Uh, However, the objective morality oftentimes tends to assert itself over the subjective in many regards.
1: Yeah, I would agree. That's why... And there's always going to be irrationality too. I I made a distinction that it must be rational, right? Right. Because, and this is Hegelian. It's irrational to want to be the only person. And I would say it's even almost impossible to want to be the only person because in order, and this is Hegel again, um, in order to be self-conscious, there must be an other for you to be fully self-conscious There must be the existence of the negation of yourself. Therefore, you are more conscious and you are truly self-conscious when there is another person and when you can experience yourself through their perception of you. So it's, and this is the, the critique of egoism, right? Because you can make an egoistic argument from what I'm saying, except you can't if you're a Hegelian because for egoists, They try to maximize their own well-being and as a means to an end to maximizing their own well-being, they must maximize the well-being of everybody else. But for Hegel and for Hegelians like me, you and your self-consciousness is contingent on the otherness, the negation of you, and that's ultimately how we understand essence and people and things and objects is because they are the negation of something else. So we understand ourselves more and we become truly self-conscious when there is an other and the negation of ourselves.
0: So, on the one sense, I I can see where you're coming from and where Hegel is coming from. However, I don't know, because it's, you know, you also think at the very beginning you made basically just made the case for the assertion that you know morality also has a lot to do with rationalism right what is rationally better but then you know you again we run into the same problem what is reason right because you know again like like deductive right but like like what no like what like really is reason because like again if we're essentially just you know a form of consciousness inside a meat mech. Like, what defines rationality and irrationality? and What's the objective standard to determine whether something is rational or irrational? Because, like, for example, um, there's a lot of people, I say a lot, but it's more than 10. (laughs) Um, But there's, you know, few people who claim that it would objectively better for the human race to go extinct because... We harm the environment, bring about global warming, etc., etc. So like from a from one perspective, you know, the idea of or the act of annihilating the human race would be considered irrational. But on the other hand, you know, depending on who does it and what they're doing it for, there are moments where it can be rationalized. It can be justified in the mind of the person doing the mass extinction event. So, like, what defines reason and how do we know that our rationality is above the rationality of another person?
1: Well, I would say through the dialectic. Right. Thesis, uh, antithesis, and synthesis, um, which is, uh, again, Hegelian. um, I, I would say that, essentially, well, first we should talk about fundamentals, right? Right. How do we, like, how do, how do we know we can reason, for example?
0: That would be a good place to start.
1: <laughs> so, um, I would say, this is kind of Rene Descartes, um, you can't question your own existence. Would you agree with that?
0: I would disagree. Really? Okay. Because, I mean, you know, I know that there have been points in my life where, I don't. Well, also, it depends on your definition of questioning your existence. Because, like, if you're talking in regards to like the aspect of, oh, why am I even here? Oh, you know, what is my purpose? You know, things like that. I still haven't found a single person yet who has never questioned their existence.
1: Well, they're they um, the existence in the sense that they exist, right? I would, say philosoph- I would say philosophically, you cannot question your own existence because this is where Rene Descartes said, Cogito, uh, cogito ergo sum, uh, I think therefore I am. And if you were to question your own existence, you were therefore creating a necessitation for your own existence. Because for there to be doubt, for there to be question, there must be something to question. So this isn't answering the question of what I am, but it is answering the question of do I exist? You cannot question your own existence. Because it creates the necessitation for your existence. Would you agree or disagree?
0: The surface level, I agree, but I don't know. Something seems off. But keep talking as I think about it. If if I figure it out, I'll I'll voice it. (laughs) Okay.
1: So if we exist, then we can assert that the, you know, a few things. We can assert that there must be truth. Because if I were to assert there is no truth, that there is no objective truth, that's, you know, it's self-refuting, right? If right. I were to assert there is no truth, that in itself is a truth. Therefore, there must be, in some sense, a truth. Even if that in itself is a truth. So there is some truth, in in some sense. Now it's our job to find out what that truth is. And we can use the laws of logic. And a lot of people said that the laws of logic are abstraction. And I would say that they are necessitated. They are contingent on existence, Right. So for example, one of the laws of logic that something is either A or it's negation. I am either me or I'm not me. There is no in-between, right? Excluded middle. So my, you know, my keyboard is either my keyboard or it is not my keyboard. There is no middle. So if I exist, I know that I either exist or I do not exist, the negation, therefore I can say that it is rational for me to use that law within my analysis. Another law being um, law of identity, um, A equals A and A cannot equal not A. I cannot, you know, be me and also not me at the same time, um, so on and so forth. All of these are contingent on existence. and are necessitated. So if we can assert that the laws of logic are justified with everything that we know to be true, this isn't any speculation or uncertainty. These aren't suppositions or anything of the sort. These are we haven't even gotten to perception. Where most presuppositions come from is perception. If we can do this, then we can reason. We can use the laws of logic and we can create arguments. And you can, that's where I would say that our ability to reason comes from.
0: Okay. Well, I would say that that's kind of, I would say that that's fair to a certain extent. However, like, I don't know. It seems a little bit weird because, again, like, without a divine creator or something like that, something that technically programs us, you know, what... You know, what is it that causes us to need to reason? You know, what is the point of reasoning? Because, like, again, like, what separates us from simply, you know, a uh, meat mech, or excuse me, you know, a bone mech with uh, meat armor, as uh, my brother put it, <laughs> um, you know, like, what's, what actually makes us need to reason? Because, you know, if, again, if you look at the vast majority of other animals, right? Some of them perform acts that we may assert to be reason, but in reality, it could be nothing more than just, you know, reacting to superficial stimuli. Like, for example, uh, if a dog, you know, tries to lick a snapping turtle, he's likely to get hurt, you know, if he licks the snapping turtle because the snapping turtle might get aggressive and hurt the dog as a response. Now, the dog's natural inclination would be to say, okay, well, this snapping turtle, you know, he's got a lot of power. You know, uh, it looks like he's capable of hurting something, something, therefore I'm not going to lick it. However, how do we know that that's also not just a result of superficial external stimuli, like, you know, a dog seeing something of potential danger and then just naturally avoiding it? Like, how do we know that dogs don't reason as well, or that dogs even do reason? What separates humans from dogs in the sense of reasoning? You know,
1: yeah. So um, we can talk about what knowledge is, and um, a very widely accepted notion of what knowledge is is a justified true belief. Justification being, you know, pertaining mainly to evidence. Evidence being uh, your perception, that you see what happens with the dog. Um, your belief being you believe that to be a rational decision on the, you know, part of the dog, and the truth value. The truth value is the is the main point of you know, the clash and in, in divide between whether or not you believe that they are acting rationally or if it's all just, um, um, you, you know, ex, a reaction to experience or perception, um, or stimuli, whatever you, you would like to say. I would say that, um, these are metaphysical questions that are difficult to answer because it's the same as saying you can say the same for a human being right you can't really know and this is this this isn't just you know atheists or agnostics theists fall, you know victim to a lot of presuppositionalism and um and a lot of uh metaphysical issues as well is you you really, it's very hard to prove even things like causality exist, or that other people are conscious. And this is, are, are you aware of determinism and compatibilism and libertarian free will, for example?
0: Yes, I'm aware of them.
1: Yes. So, and this is kind of moving back to, you know, agnosticism. It's incredibly hard for you to be so, to not be abstract, right? Because if you grounded yourself completely in the material, in the the real world, then you come into a lot of deterministic issues, right? Do you even have free will? If everything is just causation and causality and X leads to Y and that leads to Z, A leads to B and B leads to C, then you can track back the universe to a single point, a singularity and everything from has been causation and causality leading up to this very moment. So you can't say that it's free will if A leads to B, and A will always lead to B, and so on and so forth. So this is something that you can't answer as well, and I can't fully answer. And my best, um, my best response would be this one: that um, freedom isn't necessarily contingent on. You know, wanting something because I don't think we can control what we want. Free, true freedom comes from rationalization—the ability to choose whether or not to do something. And and this is where I would pull like idealism from because I feel like if you are a materialist, then you have to almost always be a determinist. And I do believe that people can make free and rational decisions. And so I would say that I I would assert that some animals do experience free will and some rational thought because I have more evidence in support than the negation and this is the same argument for my perception right I would say that my perception is reality in two different ways that reality is what you perceive and also that I have no evidence in the contrary and for the negation I have no evidence that this reality isn't you know reality so that's my response.
0: Okay, so I don't know. It's it's, it's actually pretty interesting because, like, at least from my personal perspective, you know, between thinking, reading the Bible, and looking into some of this stuff, um, I don't know, because like it seems like a lot of this stuff tends to, because like you made a claim that a lot of theists are, you know, hold to a lot of presuppositions in regards to a lot of this, you know, that's mainly because a lot of it is immaterial. But I believe that a lot of the outcomes of what we see in our everyday lives warrants such presuppositions. Because, let's face it, even as you admit, if we didn't have a soul or something within us, you know, beyond just simple materialism, you know, we would not only be highly deterministic, but there would be no reason at all to even question morality. Because we would just be doing our role as machine it's the cogs in this giant machine, right. you know. For example, it goes back to the court analogy, right? If you have a dude who eats his whole family or something like that, exactly. like you know, you really can't objectively say if you don't believe in something or if you're a materialist, you can't objectively say that, hey, you know, this dude was wrong or hey, this dude ought to be punished, simply because he is simply acting on the material causation, cause and effect within his brain, you know, certain mm-hmm. neurons fire here and there and it caused such and such effects. in this case it was the effect of him eating his family like you know a lot of these things you know tend to warrant a presupposition simply just to be able to explain it right because let's face it we can't necessarily prove objectively that we have or don't have a soul but it's reasonable simply because the reality is is that if we didn't have such a thing right? We would be very different than we are right now. Like, society would be much different than it is right now. We wouldn't be worried about morals meaning, you know, because, again, we would be highly determined beings. So, because we're not highly determined beings, that would indicate that there is something beyond pure determinism, something, you know, that is within us or with outside of us that objectively is immaterial because, again, we... Despite the fact that we know such a thing must exist, we cannot physically see it, touch it, taste it, or whatever. So it's immaterial, right? So it requires a presupposition that whatever it is that's dictating our morality and and allowing us to be able to abstract in these forms and manners, whatever it is, it has to be immaterial because we're not seeing it in the material realm, right? And there has to be a cause, logically, if you think about it. And so... You know, while you say that, you know, a lot of theists can't necessarily, you know, we have a lot of presuppositions, I would say that, that is true, but those presuppositions are often warranted based on studying well, yes, the reality is, around us. Yeah,
1: this is the necessitation rule and modal, um, uh, right. in modal logic. Right. And that, the, yes, some things are necessitated. Um, and, and because this is how you can get around things like, you know, you understand the divinity of God and. So it's like you derive your understanding of reality from the divinity of God and His Word, but you understand His Word and divinity through the reality around you. So it's it's circular in reasoning, but it's only circular because inherently, uh, in epistem- uh, epistemologically, a lot of things are circular because you know some things are just necessitated, and first principles are often iffy, and and you know first principles referring to Aristotle's notion of first principles. Um, So, yeah, and and this is why I would kind of, I reject when a lot of people say, good, you know, point to me where is good, you know, point to me to the good atoms and the bad atoms and the good molecules and the bad molecules. That's why I would reject that because it's a very materialistic and, you know, ultimately then as a result, deterministic position and I reject determinism.
0: Fair enough. I, I would agree with you on that stance. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, So, I guess, another thing, um, question I had, well, no, maybe not necessarily a question, but I guess a point uh, I guess we could move on to, because I don't know, is there anything else in regard to this aspect that you had any questions for me about?
1: Um, not necessarily. I think when we're when both of us are appealing to an objective right and uh, we both define objective as you know as a separate from the individual and because then it can negate a lot of subjectivity and i would just say that um we encounter a lot of the same problems as opposed to you know we um what, what am I looking for here? I, I would say that we come across the same type of problems as opposed to, you know, we're complete polar opposites.
0: Right, and I would, I would agree with you there um, for that specific regard. But um, I guess another point I wanted to touch on as well was meaning because, like, one of the things that I'm somewhat convinced of is that regard, and I, I guess I sh- should uh, clarify, well, I didn't necessarily have time to at the beginning, but one of the things that I personally believe is that regardless of whether or not you're a theist or atheist, that without an afterlife or something beyond this particular life, uh, meaning is pretty much meaningless. Um, let me go ahead and expound on that real quick. So if you think about it, right, we all you know, act and behave in certain ways to achieve a certain goal, while for some of us, you know, that goal may not be you know, at our ever-present thought, which is why a lot of people do what we define as thoughtless acts, you know, like someone, you know, you know, says something they didn't think about or does something, you know, subconsciously without even thinking about it. However, there's often usually a goal for almost everything that we do, right? And even in regards to talking about morality and following, uh, a, following a moral code of ethics, right? There has to be a reason for following such a thing and i would I would argue that simply saying that the benefit of the human race, I don't believe that that's necessarily like a good enough answer because again, why must one benefit the human race? like what's so special about us that we must survive? what's so special about life itself that it must reproduce? you know what was that told that first cell, you know billions and billions of years ago in the evolutionary model what was it that told that first cell that it wasn't a blob and that it had to make replicas of itself and you know and continue doing so you know even till this present day and after a while we've evolved based on the evolutionary model and what was it that essentially said you need to do this you ought to reproduce yourself and what is it that tells us today that you ought to act in such a way that it benefits the human race and a certain ideal.
1: Well, I would I would just, you know, appeal to biology and rationalization, right? Um, so, and also a little bit of, you know, the rejection of being alone, again, referring to the um, dialectic, Um, hegel's dialectic so if we reproduce right and and cells reproduced and you know led on to organisms and then we had a common ancestor and you know so on and so forth we came about we came to be um what what told cells to do that
0: pretty much because like you know, there was something that initiated the cell's reproduction, right? Mm-hmm. The cell could have just remained a blob for all of eternity. Or even after reproducing itself once, what was it that told the reproduction to also reproduce? You see what I'm saying?
1: So because wait, are we referring to humans or just like a, a cell?
0: Both, because in well, for, the end, for a cell,
1: I would say it's just response to stimuli. And for humans, I would say much of the same. The essence of living, you know how we should act and perform our duties, and also rationalization, you know, I think that rationalization is intrinsically good, and this is where it can because it can be universalized. I think a good will is intrinsically good because it can be universalized if you universalize a good will or rationalization, you know you you don't encounter any problems. So, if a cell chooses to reproduce, you know, obviously, the word choose is kind of unfortunate. It doesn't choose. It's merely, you know, the result of um, stimulation, but when a cell reproduces, it's not because it chooses to do so. It's just simply what happens in biology because of a bunch of different, you know, factors, you know, the environment and presence of stimuli and whatnot, but for a human being, it's much, much the same. Our essence and our spirit, and what we biologically function as, as well as our rationalization. And and here's where I would reject, in a way, that to have a meaningful life is only possible in theism, because in theism, if you were to believe in God, in you know, get your way into heaven, your life becomes infinite. Would you agree or disagree?
0: Depends on one's definition of infinite. Eternal. Uh, again, it depends on the definition. Well, it, it, because, it, it like, never
1: it never ending.
0: That I'm not entirely sure of.
1: Because. So, when, when Jesus says eternal life, what is he referring to then?
0: Well, here's the thing because, like, eternal and infinite can be defined. Basically, two ways. One being, like, literally limitless, or the other version of it being, it appears to be limitless. We just haven't found a limit yet. So, like, for example, you know, we could say that time might be limitless, but that's only because we haven't found the end of time yet. <laughs> um, things like that. So, I'm tech. I'm kind of on the fence. So, I guess literally well maybe not literally but with use of the actual word it is eternal it's just a matter of what one's understanding of eternal would be does that make sense
1: yeah i would i would accept that but my understanding is that the bible says that there is no interpretation left up to scripture and i think that you know the word eternal is pretty damning in either sense um because in god's so in your example like time The only reason that we aren't sure, you know, eternal, um, except for, you know, if this happens, maybe this could happen, is because there are standards in which time is contingent on, right? But God, your God, has no contingency. He creates the standards. So when God himself says eternal, he isn't saying eternal, um, Oh, but but if this happens, you know, uh, uh, eternal unless X Y and Z. You know, internal in this sense. He is saying eternal because he is capable of saying eternal. And so when he says eternal life, I don't see any rationalization to think that that would mean live for 200, a 1000, 10,000, hundred thousand years, but then you cease to exist. I think that is a fate that is um, given to those damned to hell. You know, otherwise what would be the point? You go to heaven and hell, one experiences torture for a long time and then ceases to exist. The other experiences some good and then ceases to exist. The point for me in Christianity is you go to hell, you burn if you don't believe, and then you cease to exist. Heaven, you continue and experience eternal life in the presence of God. And so my response is, how can you say that theism has more meaning if eternal and infinite life starts to create a sense of um, almost endless possibility. And if every single moment is, um, you know, within the framework of infinite, it's hard to say that any one moment has any significant value, whereas if your life is finite, and your life is, you know, not eternal, each moment has more meaning, right? If your relationship with someone, if you know someone and both of you live for eternity, each moment with each other is going to mean less than if both of you were on your deathbed and you had a week to live. And this is because of, you know, the aspect of eternal and how when things become infinite, they mean less. So that's where I would push back in that it's possible to derive more meaning from finite than from infinite.
0: So, That is one way of looking at it. However, I would say that the evidence for my claim is simply as such that nobody lives like their life is just here and now. Like, nobody really does. Because let's face it, if all our lives were was just the here and now, we would live in such a way in which we would get the most gratification out of this life as much as possible. There would be no reason to care about our neighbors because technically, like, instinctively, that's not necessarily the thing that would be the most beneficial to us, right? And since we only have one life, what point would it be to, for me to make my neighbor enjoy his life when, if it comes at the expense of me enjoying my own life? And so that being said, you know, we live in such a way where we act as if there's another life to come right like nobody nobody well i i say nobody very loosely cuz there probably is like some weird abstract person who who lives somewhere out there who i just haven't met yet who meets this uh, categorization but generally speaking loosely used nobody tends to live in such a way where it's like okay you know what you know since this is my only life i'm just going to you know do everything that i've always wanted to i'm going to have intercourse with everybody whom I've ever wanted to have intercourse with, regardless of whether or not they agree. Because, again, I only have this one life. I should enjoy it, you know, and then I'm going to end the lives of all the other people that I didn't like, because, again, this is my one life. I should enjoy it. Like, there's all kinds of what we would define as objectively evil uh, that we would end up doing under the impression that, hey, you know, if this is really the only life that we have, and we shouldn't waste it, and instead enjoy every minute of it, enjoying every minute of it would also eventually include, at some point, doing the things which infringe upon the rights of others. And this is one of the reasons...
1: Except for for Socrates had a conversation with um, Calicles, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name completely correct. Old Greek names are weird, but... He had a he had a conversation and it was con- exactly this. Might makes right, right? Is essentially what you're getting at. And exactly. I can talk about uni- I can talk I can talk about universalization, right? And that um yeah, but you couldn't universalize that because it would ultimately bring down the utility of everybody else, and it would suck to live in a world where everybody was just fending for themselves and were only looking out for them and uh, society couldn't function like that. But what you're saying is if um, pleasure is what we're going for in our finite lives. And that's what gives it meaning is the little instances of pleasure. What's stopping someone from just seeking that pleasure through immoral means. Um, I would say that this is, uh, I'm not saying that pleasure is good in itself because there can be good and bad pleasures. Pleasure is simply a means to an end. Pleasure is a means to achieve good. And um, there was something that Socrates said that for might makes right, that the will of the majority, even if they are individually weak, is the strong and the might. And the majority want to, and this is evident in our current societies, live where there are duties that we perform and laws and certain rules that pertain to the objectivity
0: Well, here's the thing though with that. Um, so even from a psychological standpoint, right? I would I would disagree that pleasure is the means to the end. In fact, I would say that pleasure or infinite pleasure or infinite pain is pretty much the end, right? Simply based on this premise, right? If there's no incentive to do right, I do not believe that we would, right? And the incentive for us to from the atheistic perspective to be moral would be that a mutual social code of conduct in which nobody would infringe upon us and, you know, infringe on our rights to pursue happiness that in many ways, if I remember correctly, it's um, social contract.
1: Social contract theory, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, no, I don't believe in that.
0: Well, I think that there is some merit to it because if you think about it, right,
1: yeah, but there's a but there's a load of problems with social contract theory. But and I agree. The, there is yeah.
0: there is a load of problems, but there I don't necessarily think it's a situation where you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is some aspects of it that are true, and I would say that you know when you really like get down to the nitty gritty, right? All we really want is pleasure. That's really all that we want, right? You do good because it makes you feel good, or you do bad because it makes you feel good right? And then we, pro- we do our best to program society in such a way where what society deems as good is rewarded with something pleasurable, whether it be social acceptance or uh, advancement in the social hierarchies. And I would also argue that the Christian perspective advocates for such an ideal in the sense that heaven being the infinite reward and hell being the infinite uh, level of pain. And so that being said, we do good, as a religious person because you want a higher sense of pleasure. You don't, you want to avoid the higher sense of pain. With that being said, you do what it takes, even if it goes against your natural instincts, to achieve that higher level of pleasure than that higher level of pain. So, for example, right, one would say that it's morally, you know, wrong to tell a lie, especially if someone else is content, someone else's well-being is contingent on that lie but what is a lie it's just basically not telling yeah
1: yeah this is where i would push back okay oh um i don't think that because again this is kind of like uh, i reject like the uh, deontological argument here that lying is intrinsically x y or z i would say that what you are appealing to is something beyond um you're appealing to good and this is kind of like what I was referring to that the universalization in rational welfare for all. So, lying in itself, you can't say is bad because you could always argue for situations where, okay, you lie to this person because if you tell them the truth, they could go into mental collapse and then kill somebody. You know, you can think of these scenarios. Okay. So, what you're really appealing to is don't lie because if you universalize lying, Like, right, as a society, we say don't lie, because if we universalized it and everybody lied, then, well, fuck, you know, it would be an awful society. Everyone would be lying. No one would believe each other. And when we say don't lie, what we're really referring to is it gives the highest potential for maximizing, you know, the welfare for everyone. So I would, I would, I would push back on saying that a lot of these things are intrinsically bad.
0: Um, All right. So and... then, let me let me use a slightly different example. Take bestiality, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, say someone's you know into that. I would say that the whole pain or reward system is what prevents someone from engaging in such acts, right? If someone has such a desire and then chooses to abstain from such desires, it's not because mm-hmm. they lack desire to do it, or because you know of some other factor of like societal well being, but rather it is reinforced by, okay, the reason why I don't, you know, perform such acts is because I know that if I do, the consequences will be XYZ, or at least if I if I am discovered, the consequences will be XYZ. Right but if you know, if I do it, the reward will be XYZ, and then in their head they do a cost benefit analysis. Some people deem the cost of such things being worth the Gratification of doing the act, which is why we have a whole porn industry dedicated to bestiality, but then there's other people who, even though they have instinctively that desire, they would abstain from such acts simply because they do not want the pain that would be associated with being discovered and so in that regard, like because well technically, I do personally believe that lying would be intrinsically like wrong to a certain extent. And while there might be some justifications for lies, I don't believe that those justifications would necessarily be uh, 100% viable. But lying is also a more grayish area than something like bestiality. And oftentimes when we're discussing things like this, it's helpful to use something more extreme to help better understand the concept. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I personally believe that pain and reward is more or less the end goal. Because in the end, Every choice that we make is nothing more than cost benefit analysis, right? Here's what I'm informed the cost will be and here's well, what I would I'm, okay,
1: so yeah, I right. would definitely disagree with that.
0: Okay. Right. So what would be your reasoning?
1: Because we make decisions all the time based on urge and and just natural um
0: Right. But that is a cost benefit analysis. The benefit of it is, the feeling good outweigh would outweigh the potential consequences that such an action might have,
1: That's absolutely not true. If someone upsets me enough and out of pure rage, I punch them and they die, there was no cost-benefit analysis there because the consequences of my action weren't even in the equation when I committed the action. I I didn't think to myself, okay, if I do this, there's a potential that they could die and if they die, there's going to be this problem. And, and then this could negatively affect, uh, you know, my, my spouse or my, my kids, or my X, Y, and Z. There's no equation that going on in my mind. You're simply reacting based on uh, a biological function, right? There's negative stimuli and you're so pissed off and you're so upset that you just react. There's no rationalization there. And this what? is where I think there's merit to... Um, the tripartite soul, when, you know, they distinguish between there's, you know, there's ration, and then there's, a, you know, the emotion, you do things because of emotion, and then you do things because you rationalize them, and then you do things because you desire them, and there's different elements to it. I would say that if I punch someone or I stab someone, in virtue of them making me really upset in the moment, there is no rationalization or in me deciding um, in, in that situation.
0: I would say that there is it's just rather it's subconscious because in the moment right all that is ten- typically goes through your mind and oftentimes our judgments are clouded by emotions right so we become i would and I use these terms loosely because I, I really don't know of any other way to describe them at the moment and so you know at the moment when your judgment is clouded by emotion right and then the example you gave like a heated rage right and then you know i punch somebody and they die in that moment, right, those emotions boil up. And essentially what they say is, okay, the benefits of punching this person really, really hard, right, and the gratification you will get from giving them what they deserve will outweigh the any potential cost, right? And then also what I believe the emotions tend to do is they cloud what those potential costs may be, kind of like fine print. You know, it's there, but it's also not there right? And so then when you act on such an urge, you say, okay, well, this, you know, basically this is going to be better in the end. I'm going to get more pleasure out of this than out of not doing it. Therefore, in the heat rage, I swing, I hit, you know, the ga- and oftentimes emotions tend to cloud our gauges on actions, right? So like, you know, if you're not, if you are in a clear state of mind, right, where your emotions are not affecting your perceptions and judgments you can gauge okay if i hit him this hard it's going to be too soft if i hit him this hard it's going to kill him right but if i hit him just right it's going to be okay right it'll cause a balance of pain and pleasure pain for him and pleasure for me but also will beneficially not kill him therefore negating a lot of the worst consequences of following through with his actions when you're in an emotional state or heated rage right and you hit somebody. That stuff doesn't go through. All you're thinking is, okay, this is going to make me feel better if I hit him in this rage. And with those clouded emotional judgments also comes a clouded perception of gauging one's force, right? So in a heated rage, you may very well be able to control the force you deal on the blow. But oftentimes many people can't because again, emotions cloud the information necessary to actually gauge the force you're using in such a swing which is why you know if you hit someone in a heated in a heated rage and they die um, you know it's you you can make the case that from one's individual perspective that they didn't you know take stop take a moment to rationalize it through but when you walk through the steps and the subconscious efforts that go into such an action you realize that a lot of the cost benefit analysis that we perform are subconscious like we like not every cost benefit analysis that someone does, you know, has like spreadsheets and graphs and charts, saying you know, looking for the sweet spots. A lot of it is simple. Okay, if I do this, I'm going to feel pleasure. If I don't do this, I'm not going to feel pleasure. It's often literally as simple as that.
1: Yeah, but what about people who experience what we call temporary insanity or, or human beings that are incapable of committing such rationalization?
0: I would say that the same thing applies for them only for human beings capable of rationalizing such, you know, an atrocity, you know, like a serial killer, something like that. They do do the cost benefit analysis, but for them, it's just not
1: not that some people aren't capable of creating those rationalizations and that's why they get off in virtue of insanity.
0: Well, well, here's the thing though, because a lot of that also ties into, you know, the consciousness, right? Are you consciously aware of the processes going on in your mind and in your body? Or are you not? It's like in the example, like if somebody like just mentally snapped, right? And then started going off killing people or something like that. In that state of emotional turmoil, I would still say that the cost benefit analysis is still going on within them. It's just rather they're not privy to it, or they are not capable of or they are not in a state in which they can properly act against, you know, the benefit of the pleasure being something morally reprehensible. Because deep down I, I don't believe that even the people that plead insanity still to a certain extent believe that some of them do have somewhat of a choice, which is why, you know, a lot of them get sent to institutions and stuff. But on the other hand, it still doesn't negate the fact that Again, for them it was pleasurable, even in that insane state, to perform that act, rather than to not perform it. I disagree. Okay.
1: uh, um, A good percentage don't do it because it's pleasurable.
0: Alright, so... In fact,
1: a lot of them don't know why they do it at all, to be frank.
0: Well, it's almost like... Well, I'm not going to actually say that it's almost like, because it's not. However, that goes back to the whole thing of, you know, doing things subconsciously, right? There's a lot of things that we do subconsciously that, you know, we don't supposedly think about.
1: Do you think that everything we do is cost benefit analysis? Because I feel like if you say that some things are not, then I don't see why actions can also, you know, just be the product of emotion and not.
0: I do believe that everything is, generally speaking, a a a um, a product of a cost-benefit analysis. Whether you're privy to that so I, rationalization I or not. Um,
1: so if I find someone attractive, that's cost-benefit analysis. Or if I like, if I want something, that's cost-benefit analysis.
0: Well, that's not necessary. Desires are not necessarily cost-benefit analysis. Desires are information, right? That goes into the equation for the cost-benefit analysis. So when I when I say cost-benefit analysis, I'm using it more or less in terms of a person uh, making an action or acting on something. Yeah, right?
1: what you're what, yeah what you're saying about like cost-benefit analysis is just rationalization, and I'm saying that people can do things without rationalization.
0: I would say that deep down we all rationalize things, even subconsciously. So like for example, um, someone who is maybe you know, has a bad habit of, this is probably a terrible example, but I'll, I'll see where it goes, but has a bad habit of picking their nose, right? They just do it all the time. People tell them it's nasty, you shouldn't do that, right? And then in their head, they think, okay, wow, this is really bad, I shouldn't do it. But then there's moments where they do it subconsciously, right? Why do they do that? I would argue that, tech, that the pleasure for them as well as the reinforced former pleasure of picking their nose outweighed the cost of social stigmatization for doing such an action. Now, granted, someone can break such a habit by desire, right? They don't desire to pick their nose or whatever, or they desire to change such a habit, which causes them to take actionable steps towards that goal of the pleasure of not picking your nose, or the pleasure that comes with the absence of such a habit so then yeah, you can ju- you can yeah, also you can also extrapolate that to more extreme examples right so you know in the example that you gave of you know mental insanity right let's take someone who goes mentally insane and goes into a movie theater and kills a bunch of people right hypothetically that person may or may not have actually thought through the actual facts of the matter. But whatever it was in their brain that snapped, whatever chemical reaction that happened, or whatever it was inside of them that told them to do such a thing, I believe convinced them that the outcome, the pleasure, the uh, dopamine flood, if you will, in the brain that would come from performing such an atrocity would outweigh the the cost that would come from being arrested potentially killed sent to prison for the rest of your life or whatever so granted like again i'm not necessarily a philosopher so this is just my personal perspective on the matter Mm -hmm. just based on observation Mm -hmm. and learning about people and interacting with people, like this is generally how we seem to act, right? There's always that one thing that says, yes, this is better than the potential cost. And how that ties back in with theism and what makes theism, in my opinion, a better explanation for morality and meaning is that with such, you know, an ideal, we have the infinite level of pleasure, infinite level of pain promised to us in the life after Without such without such a promise or without such knowledge, right, one would be left to believe that this is the only life that we have, and in turn act in such a way that gave them the most pleasure for the least cost, or what they perceived to be the most pleasure for the least cost, or obtaining the amount of pleasure that they desire at whatever cost they see, you know, fitting. So in one case, that may be someone may not see the uh, benefit of rape or incest, outweighing the costs of rape and incest. But then there are others who, whether instinctively or rationally, do such actions, they perceive the benefit of such actions, the pleasure effect, the dopamine release, to outweigh the cost of those actions. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I would just want i think you're making precepts here that i just don't agree with
0: okay especially especially like
1: i don't agree with the psychology i don't think everything is contingent on like a uh, rationalization i think people can do things without being rational um just like because then i don't know because it's very hard to say that everything we do is based on you know rationalization and then to say that like oh animals do things without rationalization because we do a lot of the same things that animals do Right, because it, it's yeah. So that I just wouldn't agree with that, presup, And and I would say there's yeah, so I just wouldn't agree
0: with that. But Okay, that that's fair. So I mean I guess that's a point that we can agree to disagree on. Um, yeah. so is there any points that you wanted to address further?
1: Um I might would have my my point is, do you think that God creates the standard for good, or that God appeals to the standard of good?
0: Personally, I believe that he creates the standard of good. However, mm-hmm. our perceptions and judgments as a Christian, I believe, are flawed uh, from choosing to disobey that outlined law or those mm-hmm. outlined um, standards.
1: So would you say then that Morality in the eyes of God is subjective.
0: Yes. In the eyes of God, it is, I would say it is subjective.
1: So when God becomes man and becomes Jesus, the morality is subjective because you're appealing to the subjectivity of one man.
0: Not, not necessarily. Because the thing about Christ is, is that we are not God, right? And if mm-hmm. he is God, that would mean that he would be, yes, the arbiter of moral morality. Uh, However, that would not make morality necessarily subjective, because, again, if he's God, then yes, he would be, uh, rather than us being the arbiters ourselves. Does that make
1: sense? Well, it's it's just hard to say that it's because in my eyes, God creates the subjective notion of good and bad, and he has subjective morality mapped in his head, and... To me, it seems like you're masking uh, subjectivity with objectivity just because God is perceived to be, you know, not human and not, you know, man. And I would say that man isn't completely devoid of God, that man is contingent on God and we are an extension of him. So we're connected um, and through our connection, I think this creates a weird, you know, dynamic where God's morality, like you said, is subjective. And instead of us following an objective moral, you know, set of beliefs, we're just following one being's subjective morals as opposed to following anything objective. Because the the so, issue I have is that God doesn't tell you why something is bad or why something is good. He just tells you that something is good or bad. That's why when I ask a theist, when you say that this computer is good, what are you referring to? God never outlines what a good computer is. He never outlines what a bad computer is. So when you say good, good is a moral claim. It's the computer ought to be something. What is the standard in which the computer ought to be?
0: So here's the thing. So I would agree and disagree at the same time. So in regards to God's perception of, morality versus ours right it's in many ways would you agree that morality is just uh basically a transcendent law so to speak like you ought to um, do this yeah, uh, yeah, like a law
1: rule that is you know outside of one in that's what makes it objective yes
0: okay so then we agree on that point all right so then that being said let's take the example of morality being a law, like you ought to do something or a rule, right? Then you take something like a speed limit. You ought to go a certain speed, right? The law doesn't list why you ought to go 25 miles per hour in a school zone. The law does not list why you ought to go 55 miles per hour on a highway. It just says, this is what it is. This is what you do. Um, And so in that regards, we... Rationalize, okay, well, why does the law say this? Why were these laws made? Then, upon further investigation, you say, oh, well, in a school zone, there's a lot of children. Some of them oftentimes cross the street. If I'm going through a school zone at 55 miles per hour, there's a higher risk of a child jumping out in front of my car and getting killed than if I'm going on a highway. And the reason why, oh, you know, it's 55 miles per hour on this highway. The reason why it's not 155 uh, is because. At this speed, not only is it fast, but it's also slow enough that you can still control the car. It's not so So fast that you can't control. What you're saying is
1: God gives us the rules, and then it's up to us to find out why he gives us those rules?
0: In many ways, yes. Isn't that
1: subjective subjective morality? Rules given to us, and we have to apply our own subjectivity to them to um, substantiate them and give ourselves a reason why they exist?
0: Not necessarily, because again, you know, if if it was subjective, right? I could say, okay, well, uh, screw that speed limit, right? I'm gonna go 55 in this school zone, right? Well, my own subjective perception might be that this is okay. The objective standard will always win out in that I will eventually get stopped, I will get ticketed. And if I'm going too much, much too fast, or if I cause an accident, I also run the risk of being arrested and my driver's license being revoked. So while per- subjectively I could perceive, you know, a better option beyond the one that's listed, however, the o- objective standard will always win out. Yeah,
1: Well, I, I, I disagree I, in this way. I think that you are masking subjectivity by uh, by claiming its objectivity. I would say it's more like this. 25 miles per hour in a school zone um, and the subjectivity of it comes from you have two people, one, okay, I respect this law given to me by God, let's say the law comes from God. And the and because he doesn't say why, and I have to derive, you know, it's meaning myself. Oh, because it's, you know, inherently and intrinsically trying to protect the life of a child, and the life of a child, you know, I I want to protect because, you know, I'm, I'm a human, I was a child, and and I would appreciate that. Um, I'm going to protect that child in virtue of the fact that I'm a human. Well, B would say, same thing, except for, oh, I want to protect the life of a child because human life is intrinsically valuable, regardless of whether or not I'm a human. So there's subjectivity applied to it. And the subjectivity, you know, is within uh, yourself and you're applying it and putting it onto the law. So I would say, if God gave you a law, um, being gay is wrong, right? Or, or killing is wrong. These things, God says are wrong, and you're saying it's objective. But every single Christian you can ask, why is it wrong? And they'll give you a different subjective answer. So you're masking subjectivity and subjective morals with an objective, you know, label. Just because it comes from God, which you conceded yourself that, you know, God's notion of good and bad is inherently subjective. It's within Himself.
0: So. Let me see if I, let me see if I follow properly. So what you're saying is is that because we have to interpret you know, the reasoning behind the law or the, and all, as well as the meaning behind it, that makes it subjective. Well, yes. Okay. So if that's the case, then how come you know, we impose certain subjective standards over others, right? Because like if, cause the whole definition of objective is like outside of oneself, right? Mm-hmm. So if the laws being enforced or the laws being dictated are outside of ourselves, right? If we're not the ones who are arbitrating it, that definitionally makes it objective. So if God, you know, if God or the government says that killing is wrong, right? Regardless of what we think, right? The standard that was laid out is that killing is wrong. We can choose to say, oh. Well, you know, I, I just feel like killing today or we might have a justification well, like, oh, that dude was a pedophile. The, like the
1: issue. Yeah. The issue is that the laws in theism are not grounded in objectivity. The, the grounding comes from your own subjective notion of good and bad. And ultimately, right. God says killing is bad and I have to you know apply my own subjectivity to that to ground it right? Why is, you know, killing bad? Why do I think God says killing is bad? Well, hold on now. God says that some people should be killed. God even asked someone to kill their son. Um, I, I have to come up with some sub- subjective rationalization for this. And so you can't say that it's, you know, grounded in objectivity when it, it's not, I mean, it's grounded in the subjectivity of God's mind. And also the you know, you have to justify with your own subjectivity. So therefore it's hard to say that, um, I would say that the law itself is objective in the way that it's you know an absence of humanity um, in, in one person's subjectivity but your justification for it is subjective
0: so i kind of see where you're coming from however again like i don't necessarily see how that would necess how that would make it inherently subjective because the law
1: would be objective, but I would say that um, it's the, the law is masking a lot of subjectivity that um, a lot of theists try to break from just in virtue of them claiming that it's objective morality.
0: Right. Well, all laws do. I mean, because, like, for example, I, yeah, the perceived societal benefit of a 55 mile per hour speed limit on the highway, you know, that's based on someone's opinion, right? Because... Yeah, just between you and me, I've driven mm-hmm. much faster than that on the highway on occasion and was just fine, right? But yeah. that still doesn't. That doesn't yeah. mean that you know. Yeah.
1: So so what what I'm really trying to get at here actually is that um, our positions are not um, exclusive each of each other, mutually exclusive. Right. What I'm saying mm-hmm. is essentially that our positions can piggyback off of each other I think a theist cannot rationalize their their morality simply because of what the Bible says I think they need to have grounding in something that is not purely you know subjective and so when you say and this is the main you know point of the debate is when you say that you cannot have objective morality without God I'm saying um, that you're you are Morality that is only from God is subjective. And, and, and in a way, it is subjective. And so I'm saying that... Um, I, I Essentially, I don't think you need to have God for objective morality. I think you could have mor- mor- ethics, mainly ethics, that is apart from humans that are objective.
0: Well, here's the thing, though. Because, again, this kind of ties back to... You know, who, who is the one who determines the ethics? Because, like, your definition of objective morality is a law that transcends all people and all potential lawgivers, right? So, like, your definition of objective morality even transcends that of God. But if that is the case, then that being said, whoever wrote that law of objective morality that transcends, say, the Judeo-Christian God, whoever wrote that law of morality they would then be succeeded as the real god and then the judeo-christian god is either a lesser god or a servant of the higher deity right it's almost like you know when you have a boss right then you have your boss's boss your boss's boss is the real boss the boss under him is just the person the go-between between between you and the one that's at its highest point so that being said you know if you take You know, if you take a standard, right, or maybe Mm -hmm. say you have a government official, right, say the president, we could say that, oh, you know, the president, you know, is the highest power in the country. Right. He determines Mm -hmm. what's law. Yes. But if he has to answer to someone else, that means his position as president is nowhere near as meaningful because in the end, he's not really the arbiter, the arbiter of the law. He's just an underling to fill a chair. The real quote unquote president, or the one that holds the position that we perceive the president would hold, would be the person who tells him what to do.
1: Here so- is where I would come back from this. Okay. I would say that the solution is not to say that God subjectively creates the notion of good and bad. I would say that God is a spirit, in essence, a being that Him in itself contains what is good and bad and that when humans are created in his image there is the essence of what is good and bad baked into the biology and the spirit of what is humanity and this is why if i killed someone in front of another person or if a normal person killed someone there will be feeling of guilt and it's because it's baked into the spirit and essence of the person so it is not the morality is not grounded in the subjectivity of God. It's grounded in spirit and it's grounded in biology and it's grounded in something that, you know, is objective. It's beyond one person is what I would say.
0: So technically, yes. And also that is an argument for theism. <laughs> um, no,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm hoping you're uh, Oh, Oh, well,
0: thank you. Um, but you know, in essence, yes, like a lot of theists do hold to that position. And not only that, but, you know, a lot of people would say that the reason why God, you know, why good and evil is good and evil is because essentially God made us that way if we are in his image. So if you really get down to the nitty gritty, yes, you're technically right. Uh, however, in many ways, you still run into the issue of, you know. God is still the one putting that into us, even if it is intrinsically in Himself. Th- it still comes to us from Him, right? Because without someone to place that within us, or without such a thing, uh, or hang on, let me let me choose my words carefully. Without something to program that particular nature into us, there's no telling what type of nature we would have outside of that. So, that being said, if God, you know, if God is the one who made us, or if we do, if, if there is an objective standard, there would have had to have been something to put that objective standard in us. Because if it didn't, then that would mean that, you know, from an atheistic perspective, that would mean that random cause and chance would be the determining factor of such A morality or of such an objective form of morality. And because it's all just random chance, like there's no reason at all to say that the societal good is indeed good or even worth striving for. Because again, there's an infinite number of possibilities as to the ways we could have turned out, but yet if we turned out in such a way where there is an objective standard, right? What was it that guided that specific objective standard, especially if it's universal? Because let's face it, you know and this is gonna sound cliche, but every law has a law of givers. And as a computer science major, like I, I tend to recognize programming when I see it. Like you don't just get like a random code that follows no syntax that follows you know, no form or has no purpose or anything like that. And if someone showed me such a thing and objectively proved that there was no programmer, I would, I honestly don't know what I would do. I would probably just be like, let everything go because at that point there would be no need for anybody in this world at all because the universe can operate itself. You know, if it can make a program for software without human interaction or if a program can make itself. And so that being said, like, even if you hold to an evolutionary perspective of origins, right, you know, even if you look at, you know, objective, you know, standpoints, like for example, take AI, right, artificial intelligence, there was a programmer who still needed to program the software that would allow it to learn and build off of itself, right? It didn't just like pop into being, you know, from a random combination of, uh, circuitry and electrical impulses in the computer right especially if it's operating for itself and it has the potential to be able to become more than simply just a yes or no program
1: well who created god then
0: well that's that's an interesting proposition personally i would say from what we understand of god nobody did right? But that doesn't, but there's also a whole lot that we don't know about, right? Like, we, our perspective of God and the immaterial universe is pretty much limited to, number one, personal experiences with all of them, and B, the reports of other people's experiences with all of them. So that being said, you know, we could, a lot of people say that, you know, God had no creator, but supposing there's a lot that we don't know about the immaterial world. It is possible that maybe God has a father and God's father has a father. Like it's possible, I'm not limiting it out, but from the biblical perspective or even the religious or spiritual perspective, there's no indication of such a thing. Or at least we haven't discovered such a thing. So
1: wouldn't wouldn't that make God not the, the you know alpha and the omega and the ultimate? Wouldn't that
0: So That also would tie into the whole time aspect, because, again, God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, but beginning and the end is also determined by our understanding of time. Without time, there is no such thing as a beginning or end. If God is outside of time, right, and he's the one who created time and everything within time and space, then technically, yes, he is the Alpha and Omega, and I would agree with you there, because, like, God would be the arbiter of truth and be eternal i'm just saying that essentially i cannot confirm or deny because i've never actually seen heaven i've never seen god i've never seen angels yeah, or anybody just, yeah, up there I, I to, think, yeah, yeah. To,
1: to say that like the universe is incredibly complex and um there there must be a creator my, my simple rebuttal would be your god from its description is infinitely more complex infinitely more intricate infinitely more uh, infinitely more interesting. And yet you claim that there's no creator for him. Right. Or for what he is. So that that would be my response. To right. me, well, it's more probable for the universe to have no creator than for God himself to have no creator.
0: So here's what I would say to that. That's essentially why I said, like, I don't know. Like again, yeah. I've never seen God. The Bible says that God is eternal, you know, that he wasn't created in the sense that we were. Mm-hmm. But Jesus was begotten of the father. So that being said, you know, it's possible that God the Father was also begotten by another father expanding infinitely into other fathers. I'm I'm not going to rule that out entirely. I just don't necessarily believe it to be true simply because it's not the information I was given. It's not the information uh, that I have discovered and it's not necessarily the information that other people have been able to confirm or deny objectively. So I'm not going to hold to it. You know, as, you know, basically, I apply Hitchens Razor, you know, a claim made without substantiation can be rejected without substantiation. And so, for, it's for that reason why I don't necessarily believe that God has a creator. However, I'm not going to rule out that possibility. And that's also, so like, the cosmological argument, right, that the inf- universe is infinitely complex and stuff like that, I... There's a point where it makes sense, but I also recognize that there is, as well, a possibility that it did come about from random chance. Because what is chance? It's just one possibility out of an infinite number of possibilities, right? So it's not like chance in and of itself dictates what's going to happen. It just tells you, okay, here's what could potentially happen. So if you have a lot of choices, right? Not
1: not to mention that carbon, the basis for our life, is one of the most common molecules and substances in the entirety of the universe. And that everything that we are molecularly is incredibly prevalent in the universe. So it's almost like not necessitated, but it's like, I mean, there's a very good chance that eventually uh life like us would appear.
0: Well, it's possible, but it's not probable. Cause here's the thing, right? With possibility. Well, that was, that
1: was Neil deGrasse Tyson that said that.
0: Right. And I, I tend to disagree with Neil deGrasse Tyson a lot because he's, I I don't know. I just tend to disagree with a lot of his stuff, especially on like the metaphysical stuff. But, you know, in regards to the cosmological argument, right, there's there's a difference between possibility and probability. So while I say that, yes, these things are possible, they're not probable. So Hmm. this goes back to like, again, you know, having interacted with so many different, you know, technologies, programs, softwares, things like that. If someone pointed something out to me and said and told me, hey, this came about with no creator, like all of a sudden the computer or this chunk of metal and plastic started coding itself and is now, you know, interacting, creating applications, creating operating systems for itself. And there was no initiating factor, no Uh, intervention to guide it, it just started doing it automatically and randomly, I would call them a liar or I would say that they're joking because like the probability of such a thing happening is very, very small. And the odds of such a thing not happening are exponentially larger. So it would be more rational, and reasonable to believe that it's a lie or that it was a joke.
1: I would just say that this is all grounded on like supposition because given an infinite amount of time, it's not just probable it's, it's going to happen. It is necessitated within infinity. And because neither of us know whether or not the universe is infinite or not, not just the known universe that we have, but the, um, the, um, cause, cause this is a, you know, the string theory and the, you know, the, you know, the, um, collapsing and expanding universe and that there's been an infinite amount of universes and etc because neither of us have answers to these questions it's disingenuous to say that one is more probable than the other because we would have to suppose certain things right or presuppose rather that like this universe is the only universe and that you know this universe is not infinite and, and so on and so forth so that that's what I would say is that your argument only makes sense if we suppose and presuppose certain things.
0: Right. But then again, there's also nothing wrong with supposing and presupposing things. Like we all, sure. we all suppose and presuppose things all the time.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Except for the, the difference is only one of us is asserting that objective morality can only exist with God. That's the, that's the main, the main issue with,
0: um, well, it's also grounded in the, in the, well, I, I'm going to choose my words carefully now, because I know if I say fact, like that's going to come back and bite me.
1: But... <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Especially in this conversation.
0: Uh, but it's more or less grounded in the perception, right? And I'm using this term loosely because it's pro- it's closer to fact because it, it seems more rational. But it's grounded in the understanding that, you know, the odds of material objects creating something capable of experiencing and interacting with something immaterial, like, we know nothing about the how that's even possibly capable of happening, right? Because, like, again, from an atheistic perspective, unless you believe that we have an eternal soul and that there is no God, we are pretty much limited to materialism because, again, our very essence, our consciousness would be limited to nothing more than a firing of neurons within our own brains, which is essentially just chemical reactions between cells, which is nothing more than atoms and electrons and neutrons interacting with each other. So that being said, like if it's nothing more than atoms, neutrons, and electrons interacting with each other, like we really can't objectively say what the right or wrong perspective on objective morality would be because, again, we're limited to what those reactions dictate to us, not something beyond that. And so it's for that reason I believe that we do need a God because with a God, you know, comes the understanding that we are more than just protons, neutrons, and electrons interacting. There is something deeper that allows us to be able to experience and interact with the abstract and the immaterial. And so that's my biggest objection to the whole argument that we can have it without god because without god we're essentially just atoms neutrons and electrons and granted you might also probably rebut that with something like cause and effect like oh well we might be able to have a presupposition which supposes that if atoms neutrons and electrons react in certain ways that we get certain results and it's somewhat deterministic but even with such an ideology and I'm not saying you hold this, but I, I know quite a few people who do but even if you hold such a re, such a, a stance on the matter, you are then faced with the same question like okay how come one person's you know reactions of electrons, neutrons and protons you know dictates an objective standard that we all must follow and that someone else's doesn't dictate it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm.
1: So what I would say is I would say that consciousness is separate from the the material world that we perceive. And I think the the big critique of determinism is determinism, causal relation, causality, A leads to B leads to C necessarily entailment. Um, I say that's incompatible with what we perceive as humanity. I would say psychology is not a science. It's more of a social science or a soft science. Um, because for determinism to be true and for this causal connection to be true, we should be able to see certain things and then know with knowledge, know the, re- the reaction, right? If A necessarily leads to B, necessarily leads to C in this causal universal um, relationship and all of everything we believe and do is, you know, the result of something else, then... Would you agree? We would be able to predict because we would then know, um, okay, you know, with enough science, obviously, that this leads to that. You know, if I had a a program or if I had a video game, I know that this would always lead to this. And we can't do that because I think there's something separate from determinism and causality and the, the material. And I think it's the human spirit and rationalization and X, Y, and Z, so on and so forth.
0: Right. But that, again, leads back to the question, how can a material object rationalize? Like, why is it that we're capable of rationalizing and, say, maybe a car isn't, right? You know, because, again, if without a God, we're pretty much left to that standard of being materials. Unless, of course, you do believe that we have... That's where I
1: would just disagree, and I would say that we have a spirit.
0: Okay. So then, if we have... So, do you mind defining spirit again? Cause I know we had defined it before the debate, but for those listening in, like, could you define it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I would essentially define spirit as a, um, it's like a, it's almost as, because it's translated, it's in a Hegelian sense, translated from Geist, German Geist, and it's like the essence of mind. It, it's very hard for me to describe, but for me, I would, say it's essentially your rationalization in idea in mind that's separate from the material world
0: okay so then because actually the term geist that's where we get the word for ghost yes Um, so that's, that's interesting so like that's kind of what I would imagine when I say like the spirit or soul like something immaterial that's you know, beyond, you know, the material. Um, and I would personally define a ghost or a spirit as like a deeper state of consciousness or a mechanism which allows us to achieve a deeper state of consciousness by which we're able to not only rationalize, but experience the um, immaterial. And, you know, it's interesting because like many atheists are materialists. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I've act- that uh, we have something in common but you know even without a god like we still run into the contradictions i I would
1: i would would push back on them because i think that's irrational to hold to be a theist and materialist
0: right i i agree with you because like especially like well not to bash calvinists or anything because they are good people um However, I disagree with them on the sense because it's basically like the Christian form of (laughs) ultra-determinism. Yeah. Uh, But, so it's interesting. So, we then run into the problem again, like, without a God, like, how did, you know, such a thing as a spirit or deeper state of consciousness come into fruition? Was it always here? Or did it, was there at some point where we achieved it? And if we achieved it, like, how did that happen? Like, how did we get, how do you make a ghost? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because we found ways to make all kinds of other things. We found ways to replicate biology and cloning. We found ways to develop artificial intelligence. But all of those require a person to actually initiate it, start it, and design it in such a way that it would operate how on earth did we just get that out of natural random processes?
1: You you're referring to human consciousness.
0: Yeah, deeper state of consciousness, like the soul and spirit. Like, how do you make how do you make a ghost?
1: Well, I would say it's more of like a spirit, in like in 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 the sense of. Uh, i don't want to go down like a really long dialogue tree about Hegel, but (laughs) so i i'll just go i'll just go with a negation argument i would just say well then how can you explain the consciousness of god and and so on and so forth i would just say if humanity in our consciousness appeared through let's say evolution why is that less probable than god appearing out of thin air or just always being conscious and then i could argue okay if it's possible for something to always just be conscious then why is it not possible for consciousness to just have always existed or have the potentiality to exist or maybe that consciousness is all over the place and that it's driving the universe all over the place and that we are just self-conscious and it you know can reflect on our consciousness because of something else
0: so, what I would respond to that is that technically, I would say that yes, if God is co-eternal, I believe that our souls are also have the same potential. Um, However, where I would then go back with that is, okay, well, if we have a soul, we have a ghost, so to speak, within us, right, It's, and if it's capable of being eternal, then how come it's impossible that there is a God? Or how come you know it's less possible that there is a God?
1: You say that one more time.
0: So if we have a soul or a spirit within us, right? How does that negate the possibility of a God?
1: Oh, it, it doesn't. If we, if we have a, if we have a collective rationalization or consciousness that doesn't necessarily negate god's existence
0: right and so that's why i'm a theist like it makes more sense that there was a god that not only initiated the physical reactions that would go about the create creation of our physical bodies for our consciousness whether or not you believe consciousness was you know started at the beginning or um, was always in existence I'll, I'll leave that up to the individual but it makes more rational sense that there was something to initiate, uh, to initiate the cause and effect reaction that would go about our formation. Yeah, you know, and this is, you know, in many ways, this is you know, ties in with a lot of aspects of the Bible about how, you know, before we were born, God knew us, right? How does God know you if you before you were born? Well, there's a couple possibilities. There's one where God knew you because he created you and you were just a figment of his imagination. Or it could be that you did exist at such a time and now you exist in another form. Um, but there's also a lot of different caveats that come with such a thing. And I'm you know, personally, I'm definitely a fundamentalist when it comes to the Bible and Scripture um, in regards to the authority that it holds and the truth about it. However, like, for the sake of debate and discussion, like, I'm, I'm willing to play devil's advocate on a lot. Um, and so, in that regard, like, I'm not going to, for the intensive purposes of such a debate, I'm not going to assert that, you know, our souls were created or our souls were uncreated, because that would open up, like, a whole other hour's worth of discussion. Um, but I will say that, you know, it makes more sense to believe that there was at least... A uh, being or a creator that initiated the causes uh, that would go about our formation. So, is there any any other points you would like to talk about, or any last things you'd like to say? Because at some point we've got to get to Q and A.
1: Yeah, I think we should go for it now because I have food that's ready and I gotta go eat in a little bit. So, okay. We can go ahead for that.
0: Cool, now. cool. So let's see. Um, were there any questions? So I see Truckee had posted a few questions.
1: A lot, apparently.
0: Yeah. Okay. Also, if you guys have any more questions, uh, feel free to post them in the VC chat. And ping whoever uh, you intend the question for. So Truckee's first question. As a fallible person who forgot that he ate a week ago, what makes your morality objective compared to another fallible person? with a different claim of objective morality and also who also forgot they ate five days i
1: I think i think the yeah yeah i think that's a red herring like morality has nothing to do with whether or not a person is capable of remembering what they ate um and i I think this question is using the words objective morality as if it's subjective morality um because what makes it objective is that It's, you know, separate from human subjectivity, like one person's subjectivity. So that's what I would say. And that your ability to remember what you ate has nothing to do with with your biology or your essence of being.
0: Okay, so question two. God created death itself. By your logic, he is evil because he is responsible for the death to everyone and everything. How do you reconcile that after you claim God is immoral?
1: I I don't think that's an argument for me because yeah, I, 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 don't, I, don't, even, I don't even think I said God created death.
0: Well, no, I think that he's talking about like, I don't know. So...
1: I, yeah, I'll, I I'll give my. I'll give, direct, I don't know who he's directing that towards, because that sounds yeah, like it's Yeah, I don't know either. It's, it sounds
0: like it's both, but I, I'll give my answer. Um, so, God created death itself. By right? logic, he is evil because he is responsible for the death to everyone and everything. How do you reconcile that if you claim God is immoral? So, one, I don't claim that God is immoral. I claim that he is moral. And two, I don't necessarily think that death is inherently bad. So, my personal belief and convictions, death is the absence of life, or the ceasing of life to exist. And I believe that there are certain circumstances at which death is justified. Um, for example, you wouldn't want you know, a mass serial, well, you wouldn't want a rapist to live forever, right? Or a serial rapist to live forever, right? You wouldn't want a pedophile to live forever. Like there are certain things and certain benefits that death has. This is why societies used to have the death penalty. There were certain acts and crimes that warranted one's removal from society for permanently. And so, that being said, I don't believe that death in and of itself is inherently evil. Um, even from the Christian perspective, it's not inherently evil. It's the natural results of evil being in the world. It's, in essence, the essence execution of justice for breaking the moral laws and so that being said if you want to like if you want to think about it that way one could say that death is actually a good thing because justice is good punishing evil is good therefore death if it's the punishment of evil one could also make the argument that it's good so is there anything you want to add to that Cole?
1: Um, I just don't think it's a question really directed towards me because it's more of like defending God. And I don't, I don't think it pertains to what my argument was.
0: Okay. Fair enough. So question three. What makes you feel like you claim infallibility? Objective morality means it's infallible.
1: Yeah. So I think that's directed towards me. So um, I I think I can attack this on multiple avenues. Um, one is that objective morality doesn't necessitate, like, infallibility, right? It just necessitates that it's, you know, apart from human subjectivity. So if a bunch of humans got together and they created a moral code um, and they lived by that code, technically that would be objective morality because it's a code that is separate from one's subjective notion of good and evil. It's notion of good and evil created by the community and it's separate from just one's subjectivity. And this is re- completely regardless of whether or not it's fallible or not or infallible. Another thing for what I was talking about is um, because it's based on you know biology and one wanting to maximize their own well-being, um, I and their wants. I don't think there's anything infallible about that, unless you can show me one person who does something that they don't want. Um, which I reject. I think everything you, that you do is, is a want, and you want to do it. If I have a gun to my head and I choose to do something, it's be, it because they tell me to do it. I chose to do it. did it because I wanted to do it. So, it, more specifically, if someone put a gun to my head and said to, you don't know, call X, Y, and Z and tell them, you know, A, B, and C, I, y- you can't argue that I didn't want to do it if I do do it. Because I no, I wanted to do it because I wanted to experience the end in which the action would hold, right? So it's because if you say that you, you didn't want to do it, I think that's just a fancy way of saying you don't want what you do want. And because ultimately every action is just a means to an end. And we want to do every action to achieve the end that we want. So that's what I was saying.
0: Okay. so let's see next question B question 4 how would you prove someone's claim of objective morality what makes your morality superior to theirs is It based in majority belief uh, I think this is a two-fold question if you believe God is immoral yet majority of the world believe in God therefore plurali- by pluralism you're immortal
1: you meant immoral Immoral.
0: yeah i think think so Um, too how would i
1: prove someone else's claim of objective morality what makes your morality superior to theirs um again this is where i made the distinction actually between ethics and morality i think that morality can be subjective in the sense that um you are trying to like i gave with the handshake and the bow like how one can be disrespectful and the other can be respectful uh, in certain circumstances, but ultimately you're appearing to, uh, appealing to the same ethical uh, standard of good and that you don't want to like disrespect somebody. So I, I would say that this the subjectivity aspect comes from um, the uh, the group and the community, but the objective standard stays constant. Okay. Oh, oh! And with the, uh, you believe I—I I never said that God was immoral, um, and if the majority of the world does believe in God, then and and they create a standard based on God and they create objective ethics because of it, then th- that would be objective morality. And there you go. Okay. So the next
0: question: prove egoism objectively is morally wrong the human has a limited lifespan what makes them immoral for maximizing their individual pleasure
1: well egoism is essentially um maximize your own well-being and happiness right um i did prove that is objectively and morally wrong well like this is like what i was saying with the hegelian uh, sense that i think that it is wrong because you you aren't Just trying to maximize yourself in egoism. Usually, you're trying to maximize the well-being of others. And I think just caring about yourself is irrational because in order for you to understand yourself with self-consciousness, like I was saying in a Hegelian sense, there needs to be an other in the negation of yourself. And so prove that it is wrong. I could do that in multiple avenues. Number one, uh, biologically, humans are very uh, naturally social, and we care about each other. And to just care about yourself is against biology. And And that's just, that's just the way we are. And then not to mention, like I was saying, I think that it's necessitated for there to be an other for you to really understand yourself. So in egoism, you want to maximize yourself, therefore, in a way you necessitate the existence of the other. And a human has a limited lifespan. What makes them immoral for maximizing their individual pleasures? Um, maximizing your individual pleasures isn't immoral in itself unless it leads to somebody else's hardship. If you, if everybody is maximizing their own individual pleasures, um, devoid of you know hardship of another, then I, I don't think that's inherently immoral.
0: So then, question six. How can God be able to do wrong if proven it's from God when the objective judge for right and wrong is God himself? By definition, everything he does is subjective good. So I think that one was for me. Um, so, in regards to that question, how can God be able to do wrong when the objective judge for right and wrong is himself? The answer would be It would depend on your perspective of how God and morality are intertwined. So if you believe that God is like the author of morality in the sense where he thinks it up and then, you know, puts it out as the divine command, uh, and then what he says goes and what he says has the potential to change just like anyone else when they're making a a law or a rule, then yeah, by definition, everything he does would be objectively good. Um, however if if the moral code is uh, in essence of God like an actual part of his being kind of like you know how our arms might be a part of our body God's sense of moral code of conduct conduct being a part of his essence and who he is if you look at the relation between God and morality in that regard is them being inseparable then God by definition, cannot be bad, right? In order to do so, he would have to separate himself from that morality, just like one would have to, you know, if I wanted to separate myself from my arm, I would have to amputate it, or if I wanted to be armless, I would have to amputate it, or if I wanted to change it, again, amputation. But if God wanted, if you take this perspective where uh, morality is an integral part of God himself, uh, like an actual attribute, then in order for God to be capable of changing it it would require him to sever a part of himself so it's a good question one that i wish i i had a slightly better answer for um but it's the best i can do at the moment because i really never thought of it that way
1: and because i because i have to go i'll answer this one last question um the one that's directed towards me what is maximizing pleasure or what i assume that's what if maximizing pleasure harms yourself and your harm indirectly harms others, would that be immoral? Yes, that would be immoral, Um, and it would be immoral because, and this is a kind of a, you know, in the sense that you want to maximize the the utility, and if your actions indirectly harms another, and ultimately creates negative utility, and I I would consider that to be immoral, in in virtue of the utility that's you know, taken away from somebody else. So if I do something with someone else, we should try to maximize utility, try to maximize our happiness. But if I'm performing an action that, number one, makes somebody else incredibly sad, maybe depressed, maybe suicidal, then you can't say that that is morally good because it's taking away from somebody else's utility and, and happiness, and it's not being maximized through my action. And if maximizing pleasure harms me then you can hardly say it's good because whose utility in happiness is it then maximizing if not even my own so it's it's bad in the fact that it's not you know perpetuating my welfare and well-being or if an action that i'm committing that makes me feel happy you know no matter the degree maybe it makes me feel a little bit happy or you know or really happy if it then perpetuates a you know negative utility and it hurts the welfare you know to 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 a certain threshold and extent then that that would be immoral that's what makes it immoral and then with with that i do have to i have to go
0: absolutely thank you for joining me cole and uh offering this debate was very that was pretty cool i enjoyed it i did as well all right have a good evening all right have a good evening